As Ashley said, today we're kicking off a new teaching series called Rooted, and I'll tell you, I'm excited about this series because I think this series is going to hit all of us. I think regardless of where you find yourself on the faith spectrum this morning, whether you've been closely walking with Jesus for 50 years, or maybe you're brand new to faith, or anywhere in between, I think this series is going to be a fantastic series for you. But there's one group of people in particular that I'm especially excited about this series for, and that is those of you who might be questioning your faith. If you're somebody who's starting to reevaluate your faith, this is going to be a great series for you. Maybe you've started to, to question some of the things that you've just accepted for a long time. Maybe you're starting to question some of the things that you were taught as a child. Maybe you're starting to really struggle with that question of how to balance the fact that there's this good God up there somewhere with the reality that there is so much pain and suffering down here. If that's you, this series is going to be especially good for you. As we begin the series, we're going to kind of go back to its very core. We're going to start at the very beginning. We're going to try to strip away some of the layers of our faith and what we believe and what it looks like as we live it out in kind of normal everyday life. And we're going to get to the core of what we believe and why it matters. And so today, as we begin, we want to begin simply with the question of what comes to your mind when you think about God? Think about it for just a second. When you think about God... What comes to your mind? When you think about God, do you picture like the comic book version of God? Do you picture like kind of like a version of Aquaman where he's older than Aquaman? You know, maybe he's a little gray haired, but he's still kind of ripped even though he's old, right? <laughs> and except he's not underwater, he's like up in the clouds. But is that your picture of God? Like when you think of God, is that what comes to mind for you? What comes to mind for you? Ask yourself this, when you think of God, how do you feel? When you think of God, do you feel happy or scared or frustrated? When you think of God, do you feel the distance and you feel like, man, there's this big gap between me and him, if there even is a God? When you think of God, do you feel drawn in? Do you feel like you want to lean in? What do you think of when you think of God? The late author and pastor A.W. Tozer wrote in his phenomenal book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he starts the book with this sentence. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a big statement. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us? Really? Really? Is it more important than whether or not we're a good person? Is it more important than whether or not we love our family? Is it more important than how we treat people? A.W. Tozer believed that the single most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about God and for whatever it's worth, in my humble opinion, I am inclined to agree with him. Because what you think about God determines pretty much everything that you say and do. What you think about God influences your life every single moment of every single day, beginning with how you engage with God himself. What, what you think about when you think about God determines what you will base your life on. 
Will you live your life based on the concept or the the thought that there is a higher power, a reality bigger than you, greater than you, with more authority than you, on on whose teaching and calling you're living your life under that you've submitted to? Or will you live your life on your own authority as if you were sovereign? Are you gonna live your life driven by your own thoughts and feelings and your own understanding of what is right and wrong? It all comes down to what you think of when you think of God. Now, of course, part of what makes answering this question tricky is that there is no way for us on this side of eternity to ever fully wrap our minds around an infinite God. There's just no way. We can't do it. And so so we can't fully understand God, but the good news is that God has revealed some fundamental things about himself in Scripture. And so that's where we're going to start this series. That's where I want to start today. Today, I want to do my best to begin answering the question, who is God? Because I'm a glutton for punishment, and I drew the short straw, and they're like, John, you get to talk about who is God, and answer for the church who God is. So this is going to be like going there, okay? This is not the week that you can check the scores and like stay with me. I'm just telling you, you can check the scores, but I'm going to lose you because I'm going to like burn past you so fast, okay? Now, let me just start. I'm going to do my best to get, get through this and do my best to do some justice for you, God, on who you are. But here's the deal. I think to, to understand who God is, we have to start with one of the most confusing parts about God, and that is this concept of the Trinity, Right? To understand who God is, we have to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is the idea that there is one God. We are monotheistic. We worship one God, but that God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Or, as my old preacher used to say growing up, God the Holy Ghost, which used to <laughs> terrify me, right? Um, it's like, I don't, I, give me God the Father and the Son, but that Holy Ghost, man, slightly terrifying, okay? Um, <laughs> listen, the, kind, the idea that there is a singular God, but he exists in three persons, which, again, he's not people, so persons is in like air quotes, but the fact that there is one God that exists in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, is impossible to fully wrap our minds around. If you're confused, Good for you. We're all confused. It's hard to understand. It's just one of those things that we call a paradox that we will fully never understand. Now, I could do more justice than that, but for the sake of time today, I can't. We just don't have time. In fact, we're going to leave God the Son and God the Holy Spirit alone for this morning. And today, to start this series, to begin this journey, all we want to focus in on is God the Father. In the time that we have left, I want us to try to understand a little bit more about the nature of God the Father. And so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to give you two overarching fundamental truths about the nature of God the Father, and then I'm going to talk about the implications for each of them. So this is going to be like the type of week where if you take notes, you might want to take notes, right? Uh, Because we're going to go over two fundamental truths about the nature of God, three fundamental implications for each. So you're going to end up with six implications at the end of the day, and then we're going to close by trying to wrap our minds around why any of it matters, Okay, so if I lose you at any point, just know at the end, come back to me, we'll get to why it matters eventually. Okay, with me? Ready to go? Ready to do this? Okay, first thing that we know about the nature of God, the nature of God himself, is the idea that God is spirit. Now we know this 
Because Jesus tells us this, right? Jesus, one day, the disciples tell us that he was, he was in Samaria, this region uh, near, near um, just, well, it's a long story. Jesus is in Samaria. I just, I'm very conscious of time. So Jesus is in Samaria. He starts this conversation with this Samaritan woman who is drawing water at the well, and they get into this bit of a debate. She brings up the fact that Jesus is a Jew, a Jewish rabbi, and she says, hey, listen, there's this debate that is currently going on between the Samaritans and the Jews around where we should worship God. Of course, you Jews think you need to worship him in Jerusalem. We believe that you should worship God here on this mountain. What do you think, Jewish rabbi? And look at Jesus' answer. This is Jesus' answer to her, John 4, verses 21 through 24. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And here's our answer. This is where we get it. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus' point was, it doesn't matter where you go to physically worship God. God is spirit, so you can worship him literally anywhere. Now, in a second, I'm going to dig into the implications of the fact that God is spirit. But first, I want to do a little bit of a bunny trail here for those of you who question the existence of God to begin with. Maybe you're skeptical that there is a God out there anywhere at all. If that's you, the fact that God or that Jesus taught God is spirit, that fact alone should be agreeable to you. It should make sense that if there is a God, that he is not material. Right? Think about this philosophically for a second. If there is a God, and if he was material, that is made out of matter, that would mean that matter existed before he existed. That would require somebody to have created that matter or some system or some process to have created the matter to make him. And if God is made out of matter, not only did matter exist before him, but something happened or some, someone happened to make him out of that matter, which would make that thing God. And so the fact that Jesus taught God is spirit should serve as a starting point for you. That alone, of course, does not convince you that there is a God. But I'm just saying that if you question the existence of God, the fact that Jesus taught God is spirit, that alone should serve as common ground for you to begin to ask all the other important questions in your journey to discover whether or not you believe there is an actual God. Okay? You guys still with me? Yeah, okay. Uh, Jesus taught that God is spirit. Now, there are a lot of implications of that. I'm going to just give you three this morning. But number one, if God is spirit, that means that God is alive. A spiritual being is alive. A spirit is not dead. That means that God is not like the pagan gods of ancient times who were carved out of a block of wood or molded out of clay or gold or iron or what other substance you want to pick. Those gods were not gods at all. They were dead, inanimate objects. But God isn't like that. In fact, there were so many cultures surrounding the Israelites in the Old and New Testaments that were worshiping inanimate objects that the God of the Jews was commonly referred to simply as the living God. So the fact that God is spirit tells us something. It tells us that God is alive and well. 
The second implication of the fact that God is spirit is that it means God exists outside or beyond physical space. Again, think about this from a philosophical standpoint. If God is spirit and not physical, if he's not made of matter, then he's not confined to any physical space. God says this about himself to the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 23, look at what God, God asks Jeremiah. He says, am I only a God who is nearby and not a God who is also far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? It's this idea that God was getting at that he is everywhere at all times. There are zero restrictions on him physically because he is not physical. This is why we can say with confidence that everywhere you go, God is there with you. You will never travel anywhere physically and be separated from the presence of God. Except maybe when you're in New Jersey. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. If you've been to Jersey, though, you kind of agree with me, don't you? So number one, if God's spirit, it means he's alive. Number two, it means he's not contained within any physical space or dimension. And number three, the fact that God is spirit means that we can describe him at least partially with human-like attributes. Now, it's not that God has human attributes. It's that God has given us some of his God-like attributes. But what I mean by this is that if God is God is spirit, then he's not just a force that is in existence in the universe. God's not a force in the sense that like gravity is a force, right? The force of gravity is real. It does exist, but it does its thing and that's it. You would never use human-like attributes to describe gravity. But God is not just a force. He's not a law of nature. God has a will. He has thoughts. He communicates. And so we can say things about God like God is compassionate. We can say God is just. We can say God is holy. We'll never be able to fully describe him, but we can use some of these attributes that we do understand to define his attributes. And so the fact that God is spirit means that, number one, God is alive. Number two, he exists outside of physical space. And number three, that he is describable with some attributes. Now, all of that's very heady. Let's try to get a little more concrete. Number one, God is spirit. Number two, the other fundamental thing that I want you to understand about the nature of God is that God is Father. God is Father, as we read through the Gospels, we find Jesus almost always referred to God simply as Father. And what we see is that Jesus thought of God not only as his Father, but he also taught us to see God as our Father as well. At the end of the Gospel accounts, especially um, this one that I'm going to show you that we're going to read from is in John's Gospel, but Jesus was crucified, Jesus was buried, and on the third day, we know that uh, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. 
She gets to the tomb. She discovers that it's open. She goes in. The body's gone. She immediately breaks down, starts to cry. She thinks that somebody's either moved or stolen the body. She doesn't know what's going on, but she's heartbroken. Somebody comes up behind her, John tells us, and, and asks her a question. She turns around, panicked, and then all of a sudden she realizes it's Jesus. And when she realizes it's Jesus, she grabs him and she cries out, Rabbi, teacher. Look at what Jesus says to her in this moment. John 20 Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to who? The Father. Go instead to my brothers, talking about the other disciples and his followers, go instead to my brothers and tell them, hey, I am ascending to my Father, and here it is, and your Father. I am going to my Father. I am going to your Father. He said, I'm going to my God. I'm going to your God. At his core, God is our father, and that has some incredible implications. But before we get into the implications, I first want to acknowledge that some of you, when you hear the fact that God is father, that does not bring about good feelings or good thoughts to you. I am painfully aware of the fact that many of you carried in here with you this morning deep wounds and scars from a father who failed you. So what do we do with that? How do we, how do we balance this statement or teaching from Jesus that God is father with the real world experience you've had with your father? Well, I think it's at least partly helpful to know that this is a tension that Jesus and the other writers of Scripture were well aware of. Terrible fathers are not a new reality. They were around in the first century. They were around in Jesus' day as well. And so what we see as we read through the New Testament is that Jesus and the other New Testament writers frequently draw attention to the fact that God is not just any father, but they point out how much God is infinitely better than any earthly father. Well, just one example of this. One day Jesus was teaching his disciples about prayer. He was telling them, encouraging them to pray to God, their heavenly father. And this is what he said in Matthew 7. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Here it is. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? He's going to start making the parallel between God as our father and our earthly fathers. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Notice the emphasis on how much better our heavenly Father is than even the best earthly dads. This is so important. Fathers, you need to hear this. Mothers, you need to hear this. Children, grown children, you need to hear this. This is so important. Let me just show you verse 11 again. He says, if you then, though you are evil... All of you dads, this is not the most complimentary thing. 
Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that every single earthly dad is broken and evil. He says, if you are evil and you still know how to give good gifts to your children, most dads want to give good gifts to their children, right? I recognize there are some awful dads, but most dads, even in their sin, still want to give good gifts to their kids. And Jesus said, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, here it is, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus was aware of the brokenness of our relationships with our earthly fathers, the brokenness of our fathers. And so Jesus goes beyond the simple encouragement, hey, God's your father. Good news, you've got another father, just like the one on earth, but you've got a heavenly father. He goes beyond that, and he contrasts the evil in every earthly father with the fact that there is no evil in God. His point was that every single earthly father is broken. Every single earthly dad has a sin nature. All fathers get tired and worn out and frustrated. They struggle with their own sin and self-centeredness. They all have evil desires and their own wounds that haven't been fully healed in them yet, but God doesn't. And so if I was going to illustrate it, I would do it like this. I would say, let's say that you had a, a bad earthly father. Let's just say he was maybe gone completely, absentee dad, or maybe you had one and it was awful and you wished that he hadn't been around, right? Let's just say your dad was right here. And the dad that you wish you had, the, the good dad that you dreamed of, that you wish you had is over here. And there's like a big gap between those two, the dad you had and the dad that you wish you had. If that's the spectrum, if that's the scale, then God's about a billion light years in that direction, right? You see what I'm saying? That, that, that there's a gap between the dad that you had and the dad that you wish you had. And that, that gap's real. You feel that. There's implications of that reality. But the reality is that God, your heavenly father, is so far in that direction. It makes this scale, it makes this difference look minute. And it doesn't take away the pain. But the point is, never limit your understanding of how great your heavenly father is by how good or bad your earthly father is. So what are the implications of the fact that we have a perfect heavenly father? Number one, it means that you were created on purpose. When the prophet Jeremiah was a young man, he tells us in his own book, his own document, the book of Jeremiah, he tells us that he was what he called a youth. When Jeremiah was a young man, he struggled with the thought that, that he wouldn't amount to anything. He had what we would call today, I guess, low self-esteem, right? He felt pretty worthless. He felt like God couldn't use him, that he didn't matter, that his life was meaningless, that they're just, I don't matter, right? This is a normal thing for teenagers to feel. Maybe some teenagers in the room, you feel like that this morning. If that's you, you need to pay attention to what God said to Jeremiah. So this is Jeremiah as a young man. And God comes to him, and look at what God says to him, Jeremiah 1.5. He says, Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were even born, I set you apart. God wanted Jeremiah to know that every single person who is born is brought into this world on purpose by a perfect heavenly father. 
There is nobody walking around today that shouldn't be here, that wasn't supposed to be here. There's nobody alive today that God doesn't want to exist. If you're here and you're breathing air, you were given life by the God of the universe who thought you up, who knit you together in the womb, and who has been with you every moment of your life. You are not an accident. It doesn't matter how gifted you think you are or are not. It doesn't matter what you can accomplish to make you valuable. You are valuable simply because God created you and he created you in his image. Genesis 1 tells us that God created mankind in his image. Think about that. The God of the universe has chosen to display his glorious image to the world through you. Why? Because he's your father. Because you're his children. Because he loves you. That's the second implication of a great, perfect, heavenly father. If God is our heavenly father, then that means he loves you. He loves you. Doesn't matter what kind of life that you've lived. Doesn't matter if you've lived a wild and crazy, rebellious life. Doesn't matter if you've blown up six marriages doesn't matter. God loves you because you're his child and he is your father. How much does he love you? He loves you enough that he sent his son to die for you. I don't know what else to point to, 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 to convey God's love for you than that. I think we all understand intuitively if there is a God, he is about a billion light years away from us and we have no way of ever bridging that gap on our own. That just makes logical sense. If there is a God, we fall short of him and we ain't covering that gap on our own. But the good news of Jesus is that you don't have to cover that gap on your own. God, your heavenly father, chose to cover that gap for you by sending his son. John 3, 16, most famous verse in the Bible for good reason, says, this is Jesus. He says, for God loved the world so much, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I don't know what else God could do to prove his love beyond that. What else is there than to send the second part of the Trinity to die in our place? God loves you, pure and simple. Not because of anything you've done or because of anything he wants from you. He loves you simply because he is your father and because he is love. The third implication of the fact that God is our father is that if God is our father, then that means we are his heir. You are an heir of God. The Apostle Paul reminded the Christians living in Galatia of this when he wrote in Galatians 4, but when the right time came, God sent his son to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. That's the gospel in a sentence. Kind of big, kind of crazy. Might need to come back to it later, but Galatians 4 is great. He said, and because we are his children, because God is our heavenly father, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to cry out, Abba, Father. It's the Trinity in one line there. He says, now you are no longer a slave, but you are God's own child. And here it is. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. 
Romans 8 goes on to say that not only are we heirs of God, we are co-heirs with Christ himself. You are co-heirs with Christ of God. This is a theme that we see frequently written about in the New Testament letters. This, this is such an amazing blessing, such an amazing implication. Like everybody who wrote letters in the New Testament had to come back to the fact that, that you're an heir of God. You have an inheritance coming for you. It's written about in the books of Matthew, Romans, 1 Peter, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Corinthians, Hebrews, and Revelations. They all talk about our inheritance we have coming to us as children of God. If you want to do a really encouraging Bible study sometime, like you want a Bible study, but you don't know where to start, you want something that's going to make you feel really good, just look up all the different places in the New Testament that talk about the inheritance you have as a child of God. The blessings are through the roof. So, in summary, God is spirit. I think we've got all these right here. God is alive, he exists outside of physical space, and he can be described, at least partially, with human-like attributes. And God is, God is Father. He created you on purpose. He loves you, and you are his heir. Now, the question is, why does any of that matter? Why does any of that matter? It's an important question, right? What does it matter that God has revealed to us that he is spirit and that he is father? What does it matter? Well, I would say the fact that God has revealed these things about himself matters because it points to the fact that God is knowable. It points to the fact that God wants us to know him, that God is personal that he knows you and he wants you to know him. God is not hiding from us. We may never be able to fully wrap our minds around God the Father, but we can understand some things about us. God is not hiding. God is not trying to put up unnecessary barriers between us and him. God has revealed some incredibly core things about his nature, some things that have applications for our lives in real ways every day. And even beyond that, if you want even more, you're like, that's great, John, that God is spirit and God is father, but I need even more than that, then good news for you, so did the disciple Philip. The disciple Philip at the Last Supper kind of asked for more. You might remember after the Lord's Supper, Jesus was talking to the disciples about how he was going to leave them and how he, where he was going, he's going to prepare a place for them and, and you're going to come where I'm going. And Thomas was like, well, I, we don't know the way to get to where you're going. You're going to be with God the Father. Like, we don't know how to get there. And Jesus is like, you do know that. I'm the, I'm the. And Philip breaks in to this conversation, right? It's like he literally interrupts them as you read the text. And Philip asks, this is John 14, 8. Philip said, in the middle of this debate, he goes, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. This is Philip. Philip goes, hey, 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 listen, Thomas, be quiet for a second. You're always talking. God, Jesus, just show us God himself. Show us God the Father, and that'll be enough. You won't have to answer any other questions. Like, we'll figure it out from there. If you just show us God. And you know what Jesus said back to him? The very next verse, John 14, 9, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Because God the Father and God the Son are one, 
when we see Jesus, we see God the Father as well. So when it comes to knowing who God is, all we have to do is look at Jesus. God may be huge and indescribable, but he has also made himself very well known. And you can know him. All of this matters because you don't have to go through one life wondering what God is like. You don't have to wonder who is God. You are invited to know, and knowing who God is will make all the difference in your life. So as you read through the New Testament, you just look at Jesus and you go, what can I learn about God the Father by, by looking at how Jesus treated people, by reading what Jesus said, by listening to what Jesus taught? You can learn everything you need to know about God the Father by looking at Jesus. And the last thing I'll say about that, though, is that it's one thing to know about God. It is something else entirely to know God. You follow me? It's one thing to know about God. Something else entirely to know him personally. At the end of the day, that's the invitation that is extended to you and me. To not just know about the God of the universe, the living God, but to actually know him at a personal level. And for those of you who have chosen to walk away from your faith or to walk away from church or to walk away from God, it might be worth considering. Is it possible that you had a low view of a God that you knew a little bit about, but that you did not know personally? Is it possible that you had a low view of a God you knew about, you had heard about, you had learned about, but that you didn't know personally? If so, I think those gods are easy to walk away from. It's easy to walk away from a God that we have a low view of, who we've just heard some things about, but that we don't know personally. But a God that is sovereign, a God that is huge, a God that is indescribable on one hand, and yet you can actually know on a personal level, you can go through life feeling like you have his spirit with you, prompting you, leading you, guiding you, encouraging you. That type of a God is so much harder to walk away from. Because when you've experienced that, the one true living God in your life, you don't want to walk away from that. You discover how good he is and how rich that relationship can be. And so for some of you, it might be time to consider changing what it is that you think about God when you think about him. And this series is going to help you do that. So I hope you're here next week for part two of Rooted. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I say that with extra emphasis this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is so great to come before you thinking of you as a perfect Heavenly Father, a God who created each one of us on purpose and for a purpose, a God who loves us better than any earthly dad could love his child. Lord, I pray, we pray, that over the course of this series, you would become even more real to us. That as we 
go back to the core of our faith and what it is that you have revealed about yourself. Lord, would you help us to understand? Would you help us to learn? Would you help us to grow? Would you give us some things to wrestle with and to talk about? But Lord, even beyond that, would you help us to finish this series knowing you more intimately? Lord, would you be more real to us than you've ever been? Not because you've changed, but because our understanding of you has changed. Lord, we give you this series. We pray that your will would be done in it and in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Amen.